This episode of the DBR podcast is brought to you by the boys from Bird Campbell, Jamie Campbell and Tucker Bird to Dukies, who have now started a law firm with offices in Texas and Florida. Reach out to them. If for nothing else, you can let them know, go to hell, Carolina and the Tar Heels. They just went to hell. Welcome to episode 113, 113 episodes of the DBR podcast. We're going to have a fun one tonight, people. This is going to be good. You're going to enjoy it because this is about as good a weekend as I can imagine for the diehard Duke fans out there. The first weekend of the NCAA tournament and boy, every good thing that you can imagine happened for Duke. Before we get to all the fun stuff, I'm going to bring in my partners in crime in Washington, D.C., Donald Wine. Donald, you celebrating and happy tonight? Look, this is going to be the best side gig we've had so far, but I cannot wait for people to retrieve this episode. <laughs> yes, indeed. Sam Klein is in Denver, Colorado. Sam, what you doing, my friend? Well, listen, St. Patrick's Day got the best of me yesterday, but um, I am on the mend and uh, and doing great. I'm I'm just looking over my bracket and and what a steaming pile of crap it is. I'm, I'm really happy about it, you know. Yes, yes, it's it's amazing how bad our brackets are and how happy we are at the same time, gentlemen. I'm going to put a so, more. You know what? I think I, speaking of speaking of the brackets, actually, can can we just start here? I actually think you guys still have two. Actually, no, we all still. You have three final four. Both of you still have three final four participants. Um, Correct. Remaining, right? Oh yes. Thanks, and, guys and both thanks to Jordan Poole. Villanova, Duke, and Michigan. Um, yes, and, and I, uh, Michigan I unfortunately pick looking, picked. Michigan pick is looking yeah. good. I unfortunately uh, went with Wichita over Villanova, and of course, Wichita lost in the first round. But anyway, I, I think we wanted to start with yeah, with the Blue yeah. Devils, so right? I was about to say I'm in charge. By the way, I haven't said my name. I'm Jason Evans. Duh. Like oh, hi, Jason. Jason. <laughs> hey, I'm Jason, and I'm in charge tonight. I'm hosting. So it is my way or the highway, guys. And my way is we're talking about Duke first, and then we'll get to the joy that is elsewhere in the bracket, the other crazy, insane stuff that has happened in the past 48 hours or so. By the way, folks, I should tell you right now, we're recording this as there's still a couple games going on. We're still waiting to see if University of Maryland, Baltimore County can make the Sweet 16. That's a phrase that has never come out of anyone's mouth before in history, <laughs> and yet it is a very real possibility, and we're, we're still waiting to see what's going to happen with Clemson. It looks like Clemson's going to make the Sweet 16, but we're going to put all that aside because we're starting with the Duke Blue Devils, who uh, we, we did an emergency podcast. We recorded right after they beat Iona. They beat Iona very, very easily, and we, we said that we thought Rhode Island would, was going to be a tougher opponent, but we we had a hard time sort of seeing how Rhode Island would stay with Duke's size. And lo and behold, the Blue Devils just hammered, hammered Rhode Island. Uh, great school. Loved Danny Hurley, but Duke won 87 to 62. And I'm not, I'm not even sure it was as close as that score. The 25 points, it felt like more than 25 points. It absolutely felt like this game was over um, just seconds into the second half. Um, uh, Marvin Bagley leads the way with 22 points. Gary Trent um, uh, hits four three-pointers on his way to 18 points. Um, Duke controls uh, really all aspects of the game. I thought Rhode Island looked lost at times, um, especially on offense. Uh, they're a fairly good offensive team, and they only got 62 points. Uh, Donald, I'm going to go to you first. Give me your impressions of, of Duke's easy victory uh, as we move on from the round of 32 into the Sweet 16. It was methodical. Uh, you know, Coach K stated at halftime, we had a 17-point lead at that point, and they asked him, hey, how did you pull away? And he just basically said, we made our shots, and they didn't. We're playing hard. They're playing hard. They're a good team, but we're hitting our shots, and they didn't. That's a credit to our defense settling in and really giving Rhode Island a hard time, especially uh, on jumpers. You know, in the second half especially, it was the Marvin Bagley show, and – he had there's the sequence where he had two earth shattering dunks in like two possessions and then a three pointer and basically just proved that he wasn't human again for what the umpteenth time this year. 
uh, Wendell Carter, I, I, it's weird. He had a frustrating game in the sense that he had four fouls and it's uh, becoming a trend that he's kind of getting into foul trouble, but he was still six for six of the day. Like he, everything he touched went in the rim and it went in the net. Gary Trent had a monster game on the outside. He had 18 points. He was four for nine from three. Our team as a whole shot 10, made 10 three pointers. That's really good. I mean, we had 13 the other day. Uh, Trayvon Duvall only had one today instead of four. So there goes your, there, there's your three right there. Uh, he also, Trayvon Duval had seven assists and Grace Nallon, I thought had an incredible game in, from the leadership standpoint, he had 10 points. He didn't do anything great, but he didn't do anything terribly. And he also just, you know, he, he helped calm the team and make sure that they were on the road to victory. We looked terrific. We hammered this team and, and we didn't give them a chance to get back in the game. Once we pulled away, you know, midway through the first half, probably, and a lot of a lot of pundits are saying this. Probably one of the better te- better games any team has played in this NCAA tournament. I'm glad we're still in it. Sweet 16, here we come. Yeah, I think Donald, you covered a, a lot of that stuff. I think pretty thoroughly. The one thing I'll add is that after the ACC tournament, we talked about how Duke's win over Notre Dame looked like one of their best wins of the season. I'll update that and say that this Rhode Island win is right right up there. Um, as far as everybody on the team playing almost as well as as you would like hope they play, I, you know, Grayson Allen obviously didn't like go for 37 points like he did against Michigan State. But as you said, not a lot of mistakes. And um, the, the one thing that kind of surprised me is that Duke won the rebounding margin by like six or seven rebounds. It was not as much of a dominating performance on the glass as we anticipated it being. We said in the preview that, Rhode Island doesn't have the kind of big men who can hang with Carter and Bagley and Delorier and Bolden. So in that sense, I guess it was, it was a little strange, but like you said, the key was Duke made a lot of their shots. Rhode Island didn't. Um, The defense continues to be really strong for Duke and they remain in the top 10 in defensive efficiency. uh, According to Ken Pomeroy, I'm really encouraged by this, especially, and I know we'll, we'll get to the rest of the bracket, especially given the, you know, uneven and downright bad performances by some of the other most highly rated, highly um, thought of teams in the country, like UVA, like UNC, like Arizona. Duke didn't let any of that stuff affect them. They went in, they took care of business. This Rhode Island game wasn't wasn't close after the first few minutes. Duke just pulled away and the lead was pretty much comfortable the whole way through. I, I, I told you that um, St. Patrick's Day got the best of me. I was at a bar watching the Duke game and uh, was very cheerfully downing my second or third or some uh, green Coors Light draft beer. Uh, and and to be honest, was barely paying attention for the last 10 minutes of the game because there wasn't really much to see. You know, that like subs started coming in for Duke. The, they were still getting any baskets they wanted um, against that Rhode Island defense that never really turned it on against Duke at any point. Yeah, you know, uh, the thing I noticed was it's sort of interesting. Stats can be so deceptive and deceiving. Um, All season long, I've talked about field goal attempts as a big stat. And Rhode Island had 12 more field goal attempts than Duke did in this game. And ordinarily, I would be, uh, if a team shot 12 more shots than we did, ordinarily, I'd be on this podcast ranting and raving and screaming that there's no way Duke can win when they get that many more shots at the basket than you do. But there, there is a way you can win when that happens, and it's that, A, you shoot a ton more free throws. Duke hit 14 more free throws than they did. Um, and B, they got a lot more shots because Duke was hitting everything. Duke was getting the ball where we wanted to get it on the floor. We got good looks all over the court. It feels like the offense is really clicking. Both these games, both these comfortable victories for Duke in the first round, were games where it really, uh, you know, it looked like when we wanted to get the ball inside, we were successful at getting it inside. When we wanted to fast break a little bit, we were successful at fast breaking. When we wanted to take outside shots, we were successful at taking outside shots. And and the great teams, the teams that win national titles, tend to have that kind of thing happen for them in the tournament. Things just start clicking. Everything starts coming together nicely. Um, a couple it's things hard. I wanted to highlight. Jason, I was going to say, it's hard for a team to lose when, like Duke, they shoot 57% from the field and almost 48% from three. Um, yeah. That, that, yeah. Speaks, that speaks to what you were saying about how field goal attempts only matter if the teams are sort of evenly matched in terms of scoring ability, but that was not the case in this matchup. 
No, no, it definitely wasn't. And, and uh, so I want to point out one aspect of getting good field goal attempts, getting good shots is, of course, your your assist total. And, and Duke had 20 assists on 29 made field goals. That's a great percentage. And I want to especially highlight our three guards, Grayson Allen, Trevon Duvall, and Gary Trent, who combined for 14 assists and only had three turnovers. 14 assists and three turnovers from your three primary ball handlers. You're going to do pretty well when that kind of thing happens. You're going to be a successful team. And uh, I, I, Duvall, to me, guys, is it just me? Trevon Duvall is a completely different player than he was two and a half, three weeks ago. If you look at his postseason performances, I'm talking about Notre Dame and UNC in the ACC tournament and then the two games, Iona and Rhode Island, here in the NCAA tournament. He's averaging eight and a quarter, more than eight assists a game. And his turnover numbers are way, way down. It feels like he's more confident with his shot. Um, he's taking the ball to the hole with with a little more aggression in, it, in him. Uh, am, I, am I alone? Do you guys agree? Donald, let me put it to you. Do you feel like Duvall looks like a different player lately? Yeah, especially during the NCAA tournament. And that's because he is slowed down. Like, you know, I always tell, you know, I'm always yelling at TV. Well, it's not, hold it. It's not that he slowed down. It's that the game has slowed down for him. And, and that's what I mean. And that's what I mean. Like yeah. he, yeah. he always, it looked like he was always, you know, trying to think 15 steps ahead. And all he had to do is just slow his mind down, slow his control. He has much more control of the basketball. You can tell when he's going to the basket, he knows exactly what he's doing and he knows exactly how the defense is going to react. And he can react to that. So, that's what you want to see. You want to see your point guard, you know, really just be in control. And when he's in control, there's no, there's no very few point guards in the country that can match him. Well, and I think that for the first time this season, everybody is healthy and used to playing with each other. I think mm-hmm. that early in the season, everybody's still kind of feeling themselves out, right? Duval comes in with a reputation as a ball handler and I am sure I didn't watch a ton of his high school tape, but I'm sure that in high school, he was able to get away with a lot of trickier maneuvers than he can get away with in college. And we, we've seen that throughout the year of him trying, you know, acrobatic moves that don't necessarily work when you're playing teams like North Carolina. Now he is more comfortable at the speed of the college game, like you said, Jason uh, and Donald, honestly, about, about the speed, but also that he knows how to use all of the weapons that are on the court for him. Maybe if Marvin Bagley doesn't get hurt in early February, this this kind of revelation for Duval happens a few weeks earlier. I think now that everybody's been healthy for a couple of weeks, they've had a few games against good opponents, they sort of know more about how to play off of each other. It It is affecting him the most because he's the primary ball handler and distributor in the best version of this team, right? We saw Grayson Allen be the primary ball handler when we thought Duval wasn't going to get there. I think now this weekend has really shown that he's taken that step and um, and that's and that's really great for Duke. I think what we we talk about how they have to go through some struggles to get to the best version of themselves. I think that that's clearly happened for Duval at least this weekend. And I hope that we continue seeing that going forward into the Sweet Sixteen. So, uh, gentlemen, are, are we are we done with Rhode Island? Are we cool. Are we ready to move on to what Duke faces next. Wait, hang on. Before we do, I want to mention a couple of stat notes, and and these are some career stats that are coming up and and people need to be on the lookout for them. The first thing, Marvin Bagley now has 656 points on the season. That's the third most by Duke freshman, but he's only 14 points away from the record of 670 that was set by Jabari Parker. So in theory, this next game that we play against Syracuse, and I know we're going to talk about in a minute, he could break that record, become the the all-time point scorer by a freshman, uh, could be Marvin Bagley. Grayson Allen is only 31 points shy of 2,000 for his career. So, you know, in theory, if he if he goes off, this could happen next game too. But let's see if we can get him a couple more games to get to that prestigious mark. And I have to note, Coach K is now sitting at 1,099 wins. The Rhode Island game helped him surpass Pat Summit to become the all-time winningest coach in D1 history in either the men's or women's game. So he is now a win away from 1,100. We've said it before. It's an honor to see the greatest coach of all time coach like he's in his prime and it's the best thing in the world that he's coaching our team a walking legend coach k and with these two guys bagley allen and the rest of the team clicking on all cylinders i'm enjoying every second of this
So, Donald, you set us up very nicely there uh, by looking ahead to what can be accomplished in future games. Up next for the Blue Devils, and it's a big surprise, we will be playing the Syracuse Orangemen, fellow ACC team, Syracuse, who, who shockingly today upset Michigan State. Everyone had pegged Duke-Michigan State as, as a sure thing for the Sweet 16. Um, Duke and Michigan State have played each other five million times, it feels like, over the past several years. Duke always seems to win, and uh, a lot of folks are saying this was going to be Michigan State's chance to finally get revenge. Instead, the Syracuse Orangemen knocked them off 55 to 53. Um, it, it was a, a in Detroit, ugly, Jason. Ugly in game. Detroit. It right in Detroit. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. It was an ugly game. I mean, Michigan State could not hit the broadside of a barn, and and frankly, Syracuse's offense basically consists of having guys run to the basket with the ball in their hands and try and put up off balance crazy stuff and get fouled. That that's basically all Syracuse tried to do. Uh, Sam, I want to go to you first. And and I think what we need to do is we need to remind folks a little bit of what happened when Duke faced Syracuse earlier this season. It was uh, it was Marvin Bagley's first game back from injury. The Blue Devils won 60 to 44. And and basically, and let's see if I remember it the same way you guys remember it. We kept him at arm's length pretty much the entire game, like a seven to 10 point lead. And then we pulled away in the final eight minutes or so. We shot terrible from outside. We were just two of 18 on three-pointers. But, Sam, do you remember it the way I do? We dunked mercilessly on them. We just yeah. dunked, dunked, dunked on Syracuse all day long, right? Well, you, you, you took most of my notes, but um, Sorry. <laughs> you, you, led me in, you led me in perfectly. Duke had 13 dunks in that game. That's according to the Duke dunk thread on uh, the Duke basketball report forum, which um, is, is a thread that I highly recommend reading because it's a lot of fun um, and provides a lot of uh, interesting insight about stats that you don't necessarily see in the box score. But yeah, so according to, that, according to that thread, Duke had 13 dunks in the game and they made 22 field goals. So 13 of the 22 makes in the game were dunks. Like you said, Duke didn't shoot well from outside. They only hit two of 18 from three, which is what led to them only scoring 60 points. But the zone defense for Duke with Marvin Bagley back in the lineup was totally effective against a Syracuse team that we know is bad on offense, but held them to 44 points in Cameron, a really impressive performance. Like you said, kind of arm's length the whole way um, before pulling away at the end. The key to that game, I think, was that it was Bagley's first game back, and we said we weren't really sure what to expect. I remember saying previewing that game you know the week before that it was going to be interesting to see how Duke attacks the zone with Bagley and Carter both back in the game I said that I wanted to see Bagley you know playing at, at the free throw line um, the key for Duke against Syracuse uh, as far as attacking the zone is not to make shots so Donald you were talking about Grayson Allen maybe getting 31 more points to reach 2,000 in this game I doubt that's going to happen just because he's not going to get opportunities to make threes that he would against a normal opponent. Syracuse's zone ranks fifth in overall defensive efficiency in the country. So um, the, the key here is to is to create the three levels, um, sort of like how the triangle offense works. You want your ball handlers at, at, at the top of the key to make good entry passes into that free throw line area. And you also want big men to be near the basket to, to get the ball and get dunks. That's the best way to beat Syracuse is passing it down to the baseline. Um, if Duke can do that and, and can, can create offense that way by, by moving the ball vertically rather than horizontally, um, it should be pretty easy for them to beat Syracuse. That game, the Michigan State game, as you said, Jason, was like such an atrocity. Um, lots of, of missed shots. And, and we said earlier, Jason, when you were talking about the Rhode Island game, you said, you know, oh, if, if Duke has a game where they take fewer field goal attempts than, than their opponent by a lot, then you're, you're going to harp on that. Man, Michigan State got all the rebounds in this game, got all the shot attempts, and just made nothing. Um, but that's how good Syracuse's defense is. And, and again, we, we talk about this a lot now that Duke is playing the, the zone defense. There's a misconception that the zone defense is meant to, it, it, like that you beat it by shooting threes. A good zone defense like Syracuse's, and I should say like Duke's now, is good at limiting three-point attempts and three-point makes. Um, 
the key to beating it is is getting the ball down low. Duke did that in the first game against Syracuse. I expect it to be um, to be even more effective now that they've really reintegrated Bagley, and now that Duval, like you guys said, is is more comfortable in his role in this offense. Um, Syracuse's defense is great at frustrating players who don't know how to play against it, and that is basically most of college basketball. On the other side of the ball, Syracuse's offense is terrible. I think they're like 130-some. Oh, oh, yeah, hold yeah. on. Hold on. Let me let me get in here really quick if I can. Do the it. Syracuse p- – people – I don't think people even realize – how bad the Syracuse offense is like merely it's, going to Ken Pomeroy and saying, Oh, they're, they're 130th or whatever right. it is. Okay. So, but, but even if you start there, <laughs> if you start there, if so, when, when Duke's off or when Duke's defense was bad, I think they got down to like 110th or something in the country. And that was around early January. We've talked about it before here on the show at that time, everyone was like, Oh my God, Duke's defense so bad. Can't stop anything. Can't stop, you know, freaking NC state Syracuse is, Offense was like way worse than Duke's defense was at that point, and they are still in the tournament. Um, we we know that they have a couple guys who, in theory, can score. But yeah, if you watch that Michigan State game, you know, Jason, you 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 said it exactly right. They drive to the hoop with abandon. They don't really pass, and they try to take off balance shots and, and get free throws. Guess what? That's not effective against a zone defense. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. How, how how does Syracuse a, a, a attack Duke's defense in this game? I, I have no idea. I, so I want to give you a couple statistics. Are you ready for this? And, and I should start by saying there are about 350 teams in Division I basketball. But don't fool yourself. There are 350 teams, but a solid of them are just abysmally bad. They have no business. They are they they don't make any postseason tournament, of course. I mean, other than their conference tournament. They are they are in no way similar to teams that are still playing basketball right now so bearing in mind that there are about 350 teams in in college basketball Syracuse's shooting percentage ranks them 306th out of 350 they're that's they're terrible the, they're, that's awful that's <laughs> awful that is awful they're they're one of the worst shooting teams in all of college basketball and you know what when you can't shoot you can't score. Syracuse's points per game, 301st. That's just terrible. It's just awful. And Sam, I'm so glad you mentioned the thing about them not being a team that passes all that much because you could kind of chuck up the points to game and say, oh, they play at a slower pace. They don't score as much because of that. But their assists for each, for field goal made ranks 281st. So uh, in terms of you know, how many assists they have versus how many field goals they have. They are 281st in all of college basketball. So for all the, for all the field goals field they goal. don't make, for all the field goals they don't make, yeah. they don't assist on any of them. They're they, horrible. They are, they, they are all right. just, can we, and, and there's so much, I can keep going. There's so many other stats. They're, they're clearly the worst offensive team left in the tournament. And Duke, is probably, not probably, Duke is the best defensive team left in the tournament. Oh, and by the way, we're one of the top offensive teams as well. Uh, Donald, uh, you, you haven't been in for a little while. Can you po- can you paint, this, paint the scenario for me? Help me figure it out. Tell me how Syracuse wins this game. Well, Syracuse, the way they won today is they did exactly what you guys said. But what's significant about that is that that is their type of game that they basically brought their game to Michigan state and Michigan state couldn't handle it. And I, I, that's really something that is atypical of a Michigan state team led by coaches. It was kind of master, you know, masterful in the sense that they were able to grind it down and slow the game down and just make it just like a slug fest essentially. And with that, they're going to emerge victorious in the last game that we played. They, literally had as many field goals as they did turnovers that's you know that and that was with our you know this new look defense it was very new look at that point we only been using it for maybe a game or two so this kind of you know if they want to dominate and they want to slow the game down that's going to play into their advantage where we really thrived we thrived on transition and we thrived on turnovers and and scoring off of those turnovers because they couldn't do anything 
and they and they make terrible decisions with the basketball, whether it be shooting or throwing the ball to the other team. They're going to make their mistakes, and when they make their mistakes, we go out on transition and we capitalize. And if when and if they're going to try and slow the game down and try to make it a slugfest, we spread the ball out, we remain calm, and we make it our game. We make it where it's it, it's a little bit more up tempo. Uh, I mean, for them, that you know, slowing it down is what you know basically makes these games 51 or 55, 51, and, and games like that. We don't want that. We want to score 70, 80 points. And if we can do that, they're not going to hang with us. It, it, I'll tell you right, if we get to 70, and it'd be sort of shocking if we didn't, but if we get to 70, we're winning this game. I mean, we that's only not scored even a 60 against them at home. So I, I right. don't know that Duke uh, has and they to scored 44. <laughs> Yeah, their worst offensive output of the season was was that game, um, and and I will, I, I mean I won't be surprised. I think Syracuse is going to struggle to get to fifty against us. Look, they only got to fifty. What was it fifty five today against Michigan State? Yeah, fifty five to fifty three. They're going to struggle to get to fifty points. Let let, let yeah, us hope that, that all of these predictions that we're giving are true. Because uh, man, we are going to look <laughs> real stupid if if it's not. So, guys, speaking of predictions, I want to expand our conversation elsewhere, outside the bracket. We are, we're going to go beyond the little pod that was Duke and, uh, and, and now Syracuse. And I want to look at the rest of the bracket. And I, I, we, we have to start with two Duke's two primary ACC rivals, um, uh, Virginia and North Carolina. I, Wait, I'm wait, struggling Jason, for Jason, words. Jason. Yeah, Hang yeah, on, Jason. I, I can't. I can't do this. I, I, I am not. I am not going to let us begin by talking about UNC, UMBC, University of Maryland, Baltimore County, the Retrievers. They have earned the right to begin this discussion, and I think we should start with them. I am fine with that, sir. I am absolutely fine with that. I was struggling for words to talk about the abject failure of. Duke's two ACC rivals, but let's begin with UMBC, who who pulled off the greatest upset in NCAA tournament history, defeating the Virginia Cavaliers. Uh, it, it, you know, absolutely incredible win for them. Um, I've got a couple fun anecdotes to go with this thing, but um, Donald, you wanted to do it, so I'll go to you first. I mean, shock. Uh, describe to me what it was like as you watched. And it wasn't just the fact that they beat Virginia. They, it was a beat down. They crushed, they beat the brakes off. crushed Virginia. It, it, it was not a game for the final 10 minutes, which was absolutely shocking. And, and by the way, before you say it, UMBC scored 53 points in the second half. Virginia was giving up 53 points per game. UMBC was on a hundred point pace against the vaunted Virginia defense, perhaps the greatest defense that the NCAA had ever seen until Maryland, Baltimore County ripped it to shreds. Donald impressions of this game. So I watched almost the entire game. I think I turned it on. It was, you know, the under the right before the first TV timeout of the game. And the first half was a UVA half. It was 21 at uh, 21, 21 at the half. Uh, you know, no team was really making their shots. And I remember after the game, they interviewed some of the UMBC players and they basically said that was the turning point. They said, okay, we know we're not hitting our shots and we're tied with the number one team in the country. If we just start hitting our shots, we're going to run them out of the gym. And that's exactly what they did in the second half. I have, I have to give a, a shout out to my, my, one of my main homies, uh, Josh Ganser Miller. He's in Tokyo right now. He went to UMBC. His wife works at UMBC. And in, when I was watching this game, I'm in a group chat with a bunch of friends. And someone said with about 1830 left, you know, UMBC came out, hit the first three buckets. They were up six. And people were saying, Josh, get to a television right now. And I was like treating this like a perfect game. When you're watching a perfect game, you tell people that something's happening, but you don't mention and you don't want to jinx it by actually describing what is happening. So I said, no, enjoy Tokyo. Keep walking around. Do your thing explore the city five minutes later i told him get to a television set because at that point <laughs> something was happening at that point that they blew it up from six point a six point lead to a 17 point lead and the route was on from there it was mesmerizing in the sense that uva and, and tony bennett was very gracious after the game he basically said 
they they did something that they had never seen before. They made all their shots. They could not contend with their with their offense, and they were shook. That's that's basically the word to describe it. UVA was shook the entire second half because the blitzkrieg came through, and they didn't know what hit them. Before they knew it, it was seventeen points, and at that point, if you look through my Twitter you know, my Twitter timeline, it was basically guys, something's happening. You might want to consider turning it to TNT right now. And then with about five <laughs> minutes left, I said, if you want to see history made, turn to TNT right now. And I mean right now. It was stellar. It, it one of the, it look, UVA, some people say is part it lost the greatest upset of all time when uh, a number one uh, number one Virginia and I was at 84, led by Ralph Sampson, Shamana. lost to Shamana. Yep. That's considered. And now and That's now they're the in the number one upset of all time in the tournament. Like you can't right. replace it. All two seeds that have lost to, to 15 seeds, you guys are permanently off the hook. You may you may cede your duty. UVA reports the line. Yeah. So the the Chaminade loss is the greatest regular season loss in college basketball history. And now Virginia has the greatest postseason loss in college basketball history. Sam, I, I did did you get to experience this the same way Donald and I did, staring at your TV set, jaw agape, not believing what you were seeing? So no, um, I was. <laughs> I, I have to admit, you guys know this already. Um, I was uh, I was being a nice, good Jewish boy, and I was out at a uh, Shabbat dinner on Friday night. Um, l'chaim, so, l'chaim, uh, yeah. indeed. Uh, but um, so <laughs> I, I and, and basically the the dinner lasted pretty much the the entirety of the regulation of the UVA game like I I think we we uh, showed up at this house a few minutes before the game started we left a few minutes after it ended and I had left my phone in the car uh, I got back to my phone and it was just full of it was Donald's messages it was uh, friends from all over the place messages about oh my god this thing is happening and I flipped over to the score and I was like that that can't be right um, so I, I went home and I think I spent whatever time it was between when I got home and when I fell asleep. And then also the next morning for about two hours watching highlights and reading about all the UMBC guys. Um, the story from from their leading scorer, Jarris Lyles, was awesome, right? He's the one his uh his his parents went to Virginia, right? Am I am I getting it right or is it or is it other dudes on the team? Yeah, um, no, it was his parent his parents Lyles. met at Virginia. His parents met at Virginia. Um, and he, he was the star of the show, 28 points, um, three for four from, from outside the arc, nine for 11 overall. The, the, the offensive performance that UMBC the put athletic up. Shots, the crazy athletic shot they were making was just outrageous. They scored, they scored 50% of their three-point attempts. I mean, Virginia doesn't give up three-point attempts. They don't give up any field goals um, in general. To hit 50% of your threes against Virginia is something special. And um, UMBC came into that game with, with like all this swagger and, and all this confidence. I will say that there is something sort of relaxing and refreshing about being a 14 or a 15 or a 16 because nobody's picking you to win the games. Um, and you can kind of just play freely. If you win, it's like, oh, my God, we won, we won the game. And if not, it's like, well, we were playing, you know, one of the eight or ten or in this case, the best team in the country. Um, so if you lose, there's no shame in it. And um, I, I tweeted out afterwards that, that one of the things that I have always feared as a Duke fan, you know, there's a lot of wonderful things about rooting for a program that's always competitive and that has won multiple national championships in my short life. Um, one of the things that I always fear as a Duke fan, because they're always getting high seeds, is that Duke would have been the first team as a number one seed to lose to a 16. And now that's not going to happen. So um, <laughs> that's great. Let's this see is that now, yeah, th this is great. And, and it could have definitely happened to Duke at some point in the past. I don't know that there was, that there's a particular game I want to refer to or anything where it was like going to happen, but it didn't happen for Duke. Um, it's sort of, I, I was kind of like the second time they've skirted history like that in 2010. Oh, I think Sam just lost his internet or something. He just dropped off the call. But um, while he gets back on, uh, I, there are a couple of things I want to mention about this Virginia game really quickly. Um, first of all, uh, you know, one of the things that Sam was mentioning was this notion that no one thought they were going to win and they could relax and stuff like that. Well, 
There is one person who thought they were going to win. There's a UMBC graduate. Did you guys hear about this guy, Eric Barger? He is a graduate of UMBC, and he was in Las Vegas at the Venetian with seven of his buddies, and he convinced them collectively to pool together, put 100 bucks each into a pool, and they made an $800 bet on UMBC to win the game. $800. Now, at the Venetian, they got 20 to 1 odds. I'm I'm shocked that that's all they could get, 20 to 1. Mm-hmm. I, I would have been sure they could get 30 or 40 to 1 on UMBC to win this game. I mean, as we've said, number 16 seeds were uh, 0 for 135 or something like that coming into this game. So you'd think that he could do better than 20 to 1. But all he got was 20 to 1. But his $800 bet, of course, paid off. And he and his buddies won $16,000. 16 large, 16 grand. That's a pretty good start to your Vegas vacation. Um, so there was someone who thought that uh, UMBC would win. And by the way, that $800 bet was the largest bet that anyone in Las Vegas made on UMBC. There was no one out there who said, ah, I'll just put a thousand bucks down on it for the heck of it. $800. That was the number. And they won it at 20 to one. And then the other thing I wanted to mention, um, we, we have talked about this. Everyone has said that someday it would happen. But, I, I think we never really accepted that that a number 16 would be to number one. And Bill Raftery, who was at the game, who called the game, after the game was over, this is a great anecdote. Um, Bill Rafferty, after the game was over, ripped off his headset and he turned to the crowd behind him and he said, and he was talking about the fact that everyone said this would happen someday. He goes, you know what this is like? He goes, this is like when we say, you know, one day the aliens from outer space are going to come land right here. Won't that be incredible when the aliens land? But in the back of your mind, Bill Raftery said, in the back of your mind, you're like, come on, man. We know the aliens are never going to land here. We just say that. And he's right. We all sort of said, oh, someday a 16 will be to one. Someday it'll happen. But in the back of our minds, we're all like, Come on, man. It's never really going to happen. And we especially thought it wouldn't happen with the top number one overall seed, the team that everyone agreed was the best team in the country playing in a major conference, only lost two games all year. It is it's it's beyond shocking that this happened. Jason, it's back. I'm back. Yes, I I, I did want to uh, I did want to comment on that. I'll take your statement a step further. I I never said a 16, or at least maybe someone wants to go back through our archives and find it. I don't think I've ever said that a 16 was going to be to one. Um, there are just too many built-in disadvantages to the whole thing that pretty much preclude it from ever happening. Um, so I never thought it would happen. I, I, I never thought we'd see it, and, and I'm still shocked that we did. You know, All right, I, Donald, you get the last word on this. Give me the last word on Virginia, and then we're going to talk about some other stuff. Carolina so- lost! <laughs> so you mentioned you mentioned the uh, the Vegas uh, bet, and I saw I'd seen that on Twitter. But the coolest thing I saw on Twitter uh, after the game, uh, I don't know if you guys have been to the Westgate Sportsbook. Uh, it's a ve- it's a very large sportsbook in Vegas. It, it's awesome. And they said at one point during the uh, games on Friday during the day, there were three thousand people there. Now there was one person in that entire sportsbook that was wearing a UMBC shirt that had got a guy who had gone to UMBC when the game was over, he was wearing a dog mask uh, that you guys have seen with the Philadelphia Eagles are running through to the Super Bowl. He was wearing that and the entire sports book carried him out in a, in a grace of glory. And one of the greatest tweets, but wait, one of the greatest tweets was a response to that tweet. And I don't know who it was, but they said, if that man's feet touches the ground the rest of the night, we have failed as a civilization. Perfect. <laughs> I hope that man is still being carried around Vegas today. That is awesome. That is really great. By the way, speaking of Twitter, one minute into the game, one minute into the you game, Seth you gotta, Davis. You got to roast him. I, I love the dude, but you got to roast him. <laughs> <laughs> Seth Davis tweeted Virginia Sharpie. And for those of you who don't know about Seth Davis, what he his thing is when a team is a lock to win when the game is over he says you can write them on the next line in sharpie 
You can, you know, I'm going to Sharpie them onto the next line, meaning there's no chance. I'm never going to have to erase this. I'm not going to have to cross it off or anything like that. Sharpie means it's a sure thing. One minute into the game, Seth Davis said, Virginia, Sharpie. And he was wrong. He was dead wrong. And the best thing on Twitter was there's some dude, some guy who was running the UMBC Athletics Twitter feed. It is a lady. It is a girl. I I, I know this because because my buddy knows the person and uh his wife actually gets all the donations uh all the donation emails when someone donates to umbc she said after the game she had to turn her phone off because the the website (laughs) and the server crashed with all the people donating and the 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 social media girl uh for umbc deserves a raise because you guys go back to that timeline donald donald i think you i I don't think you have this yeah donald i don't think you have the story straight because i read the SB Nation interview with the guy who was running the account that night. Uh, That's weird because they they told me it was a girl. So, (laughs) Yeah, well, anyway, uh, SB Nation, I think a number of other outlets also caught up with this guy. I believe his name is Alex Seidel. Okay. Um, Yeah, yeah, I saw a story with him, yeah. Yeah, he, he, I I guess they, they, they switch off because it's a, it's a big job or something. Um, (laughs) He was, yeah, go back if, if if somehow you haven't read it yet. Go back and read the whole UMBC athletics timeline starting Friday. You know, at whatever time it was, like eight o'clock Eastern time, from when from when the game tips off and Seth Davis says Sharpie until I don't know about twelve hours later. Yeah. Um, it's just, <laughs> it's it, fantastic. It is, it, it is unbeatable. Unbeatable. Uh, uh, unbeatable, which is what UMBC was on Friday night. Um, and, uh, guys, you know, before we go, can I, can I just ask really quickly opinion on this? Uh, are, have we reached the point where, where we're starting to doubt Tony Bennett? I, I think it's a question. That, ahead, that is a, Jason, I think it's a really worthwhile question. I don't yet. Um, I understand the critique that his style of play does not lend itself to winning comfortably or being able to make comebacks. So in that sense, something has to change. And on the other hand, we know he's a good coach because he's implemented a, a really successful system that um, gets guys who aren't top recruits to win games. Um, so Yo, the past five, that- the past five years, they're, they're clearly a top 10, maybe even a top five program the past five years right. for sure. Unless, unless all you care about is the postseason wins. And I think it is legitimate to wonder if, if the thing works in the postseason. However, Syracuse has made Final Fours recently. You know, teams, teams just, just succeed in the tournament randomly because that's, that's the nature of a, of a, of a one-and-done situation. Um, so I, I think that, that Tony Bennett puts his teams in the best position to win given the, the, the personnel that he's playing. And like people have said previously about Bill Self and about even going back to Coach K in the 80s, it's only a matter of time. Um, he, he coaches good teams every year. They're really disciplined. They are, you know, always the best defensive team, and they're always not a bad offensive team. They're always like an okay offensive team, maybe even good. So I don't think there's a reason that couldn't work. It, the margin for error is lower, but look, the guy wins 30 games every year playing in a hard conference. I, I, I think that it's fine, and I think they're going to they're gonna keep trying with him. Donald, what do you think? You know, I think in the end, it's not time to question Tony Bennett, but I think people are starting to question his system. And, yes, it is a system that's won 30 games. Yes, it is a system that has, you know, basically over the last five years been one of the dominant programs uh, in college basketball. But at the end of the day, the, the saying defense wins championships – has not proven to be true in the sense of the NCAA tournament where people have to score baskets to or score points to, to advance. And, and I think that is where people are probably saying, hey, we might need to think about the other side of the basketball at some point. The defense is there. We know this. But so, if, the, you know, but if, if the offense is not going to score points, you're not going to win some of these basketball games. And it's not even just against USBC. It could have happened later on. But – it exposed something in the system that says, hey, you guys might want to focus on putting the ball in the basket if you guys are going to win games in the NCAA tournament. So the, the thing I'll, I'll say about Tony Bennett's style is I do think that by limiting the number of possessions in the game, by running the shot clock down a lot, 
that a low possession game means there's more random variance. It means there's more chances for a team to just get hot. I mean, look, early in the second half, UMBC hit a couple threes and and against uh, against Duke, against Villanova, against, you know, other top teams who score a bit more and who are capable of scoring a bit more. He hit two threes. It doesn't really matter that much. Oh, so it's six points. You know, it, you need more than six points to beat me. But against Virginia, six points is a lot because there just aren't that many possessions in the game. And Virginia is not on their own. So suddenly, oh, wow, they, they threw up, you know, a couple random threes. And then they made a couple circus shots in the lane. And you're like, oh, whoa, they've just scored 10 points. And that's going to take us, you know, seven minutes of game time to get 10 points at least. Um, and, and it starts to freak you out. So I think that his slow pace of play adds an element of randomness that could be bad for them. But that said, I'm going to tell you right now, no matter what Virginia's seed is next year, I will be picking them to advance pretty far in the tournament because it's a one-and-done random situation. Not completely random, but there's a large element of randomness to it. And I think Virginia the past few years has been randomly hit pretty hard. And I think they're due for a big run. I picked them to make the finals this year. I was obviously incredibly, incredibly wrong about that. <laughs> and I'll, I'll, you know, eat my crow on that. But next year I'll be picking Virginia to go a long way again, because I think the randomness is going to fall their way at some point, because I think Tony Bennett is a good coach. I think Virginia's system is a successful system. And I think that at some point they're going to be really successful in the postseason the way they have been in the regular season. So I want to once again uh, thank the guys from Bird Campbell for sponsoring the DBR podcast. Bird Campbell, your Duke-centric law firm, Jamie Campbell and Tucker Bird. And Tucker wrote something to us, uh, kind of a long note, but folks, I I do want to read it to you because there's some really wonderful thoughts in here. Um, So Tucker says, throughout the NCAA tournament, we usually see the tangible results people associate with Duke basketball. The annual deep tourney run, the trips to the Final Four. They bear testament to the cumulative effort of the things that people think make Duke special. Our great talent, our intense training and practice, all of it being molded by the Hall of Fame coach K and staff and the the finally, you know, competing in the crucible on the national stage. But Tucker says, having watched Duke pursue, pursue this quest for so many years, I'm totally convinced that it's not winning that makes Duke special, although we have won a lot. What makes Duke Duke is the perpetual pursuit of greatness as if the measured success transcends whatever fate the tournament bracket renders. And what he means is this, this team may win or not, but it will certainly compete and it will realize its own destiny content. If it's collective soul is awakened along the way, making the ultimate outcome on the court secondary to the journey. Really nice words there from Tucker Bird of Bird Campbell. And once again, folks, if you are in Texas or Florida looking for some legal help, these guys help us out. We hope you'll turn to them to fine lawyers, Jamie Campbell and Tucker Bird of Bird Campbell. Guys, as we move on in our NCAA attorney thoughts, we turn to the North Carolina Tar Heels. UNC today got hammered. They got destroyed. They got massacred on their on essentially their home floor in their home state. I saw an amazing statistic. The only time that North Carolina has lost in the state of North Carolina in the NCAA tourney was today against Texas A&M. And in 1979, the famous Black Friday game against Penn. Carolina goes down. Uh, Sam, I'll go to you first. Wow, did they get their butts kicked, didn't they? You know, one of the things about UNC that's so frustrating, I think, as an opposing fan, is seeing Luke May succeed so much when he, like, is a big man who can't really jump. And Texas A&M was all over him today, like, blocking shots and and denying everything. Uh, It made me wonder, honestly, why he was ever able to score against Duke's front line this season, but yet UNC was lost, I think, almost from the opening tip. Um, 
by halftime, it was it was basically out of reach for them. And and I was going to talk just like you did about that incredible statistic about losing in the state of North Carolina in the NCAA tournament. They've only done it once before. They were in Charlotte, you know, which is basically like playing in the Dean Dome. Um, so I was loving it. We I, I watched it right up until the end. I didn't switch to any of the competitive games because man, that was that was just a lot of fun. I, I don't know how much more there is to say about it other than it sort of highlighted a overall pretty bad first weekend for the ACC outside of Duke and Clemson, right, Donald? Yeah, I, it was. It's interesting because when we were talking a couple weeks ago before the ACC tournament, it was slated that Virginia and Duke were going to be placed in Charlotte. And it was going to be that UNC was on the outside looking in as far as being in Charlotte for that pod. And when we lost to UNC in the ACC tournament, we were like, well, that that really helps out UNC because they're going to play at home. And they got just absolutely bow beasted. And it's funny how in Charlotte, the two teams that fought all year to get to that pod got smoked. And in, in the first round for UVA and for UNC in the second round, uh, and it wasn't close. And, and I think that is it's interesting, and it just tells you how magical this bracket has been so far. I know it, it, it as far as if you're in a money pool or, or whatever that you're probably you've probably cut up your brackets twice. But this is what basketball is. This is what March Madness is all about. It has been one of the more maddening tournaments in recent memory. And it's still going on right now. So I think when it comes to UNC, they fought so hard to get to that point, And they probably walked in thinking, guys, we're going to go to the Sweet 16. All we got to do is just get past this Texas A&M team. And they got stumped. It was fun to watch. You, you know, Sam Sam mentioned uh, the ACC. Um, uh, the ACC is going to have uh, at least three of the Sweet 16, um, maybe four. We're still waiting. Um, Florida State is playing Xavier tonight. Uh, we don't know the result of that game yet, but but Duke and Clemson and Syracuse are all in the Sweet 16. I think three of the six, Sweet 16 isn't isn't bad. It's not great, but it's not bad. But I hey, mean, hey, who Jason, who would have predicted will be in Omaha? Oh yeah, you're right. You're right. Wow, all three teams will be in Omaha. That. It's basically the ACC tournament in Kansas. You're right. You're uh, you're. That's a great point. But I mean, but um, I was going to say, I mean, if you Donald, told hold me, on, that, hold on, Donald, Donald, Omaha is in Nebraska. I said Omaha. Yeah, I know. And you, you said you said the ACC tournament's going to be in Kansas. No, well, I, I said it's going to be ACC and Kansas. Ah, yeah, no, it's yeah. not in Kansas. It's, it's no, in Nebraska. No, no, I said and it's, Kansas. It's just against Kansas. Yes. yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. He was saying it's it's three <laughs> ACC teams and Kansas. Correct. I know. I, I know you're just on the phone now, Sam, because your internet went down. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I understood what he meant. <laughs> All right. Just just clarifying for those of you those of you coastal elites who don't know where all the states are and 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 you know might not be all up to date on your geography. I've been to <laughs> Omaha many times. This is a great place. I've I've gotten in trouble there, so it's fun. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, in in any event, I wanted to compare the ACC's performance to another conference, gentlemen, the Pac-12. <laughs> oh my God, the I'm Pac-12. glad you didn't say the. I'm glad you didn't say the SEC because I don't want to talk about how well the SEC has played. This no, it's fine. Yeah. It's, whatever. Except for Auburn, who just got mollywopped. Well, <laughs> they just got that. destroyed by Clemson. <laughs> but yes, Clemson let's made talk about the Pac-12. The Pac-12. Uh, so I, I think there's – we got to ask. We got to wonder, is this still a major conference? The Pac-12 goes 0-3 in the tournament, does not win a single game. Arizona gets just stomped by Buffalo. Hi, by Sean 20- Miller. How you doing, Sean Miller? Yeah, about <laughs> by twenty points. And I heard this is the best. This is awesome. In the 2017-18 school year, the current school year, the Pac-12 in the NCAA tourney and bowl games is one and eleven. In the ACC tourney and bowl games, the only postseason thing that the Pac-12 has won in football or basketball is Utah won the Zaxby's Heart of Dallas Bowl. And look, hey, when you win the Zaxby's Heart of Dallas Bowl, then your conference is a success. I think that I think there's no question about that, right, gentlemen? <laughs> there, there, listen, oh. hey, you, uh, the Pac-12 is the Conference of Champions. Oh, you know, not, not this year, they're not. Bill Walton. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I've heard this not before. this year. They're not. Oh boy. Uh, guys, you got anything else yeah. you want to talk about regarding the bracket? Anything else that uh, shocked you and surprised you? Who, 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 uh, aside from Duke, uh, the most impressive team has been Villanova. Am I right? I mean, it looks like I'll tell you one thing that, that, I, that I'm looking at right now that um, has me, you know, a little bit bothered and it's way down the road and people are going to go, Jason, why would you even look at this yet? But it, it feels like Duke and Villanova are marching to face each other in the semifinals and the other side of the bracket. I mean, the South is like Kentucky and then, you know, probably going to be and Loyola. Nevada, Nevada, Loyola. Loyola. Oh, by the way, the greatest stat ever. So uh, exactly 1.1% of people on uh, ESPN picked Loyola and Nevada to make the Sweet 16 together. That, that is some impressive picking. So the South is is trash, and the West has lost Carolina now. I, I, I still think my, my pick, um, Michigan, and Donald, you also have – I think our Michigan pick All is looking us. good coming out of that bracket. All of us, have, All Michigan. us have Michigan. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I would say my only other observation is um, that, you know, we, we talked last week about how – Far we think Duke should go for it to be a successful season, or you know, it was a conversation of, of that nature. Um, I don't ever like losing in the tournament. I promise you that if we lose in the NCAA championship to Sister Jean, I will be totally fine with it. Uh, <laughs> that, if again, if you weren't paying attention to the to the tournament this weekend and you don't know about the nun who who apparently does scouting reports and motivational speeches for the Loyola Chicago team. Um, you got to look up 98-year-old sister Jean, who rides around in a wheelchair and is probably the funniest old lady in, in the whole wide world. And that includes my grandmother, who in her own right is extremely funny. But, um, but I love sister Jean. She hasn't seen her team win an NCAA championship in over 50 years. So I would be happy, happy to give her that. Um, if, if that's what it means for Duke losing in the tournament. Otherwise, I'll be devastated. Uh, so I, I do want to point out very quickly before we wrap all this up and, and get to our player of the week and our parting shots that last week on the podcast, we were instructed to pick a team that was a lower seed, you know, a team that was not a top seed that we thought was going to make the Sweet 16. You know, it, and it's a tough thing to do. I mean, picking these tournaments, not easy. And yours truly... I had Nevada making the Sweet 16. <laughs> That's right. And, and, and we Here had we this go. conversation. I think, I think we each picked a different team in that sub-regional to come out of it. Yes. Yeah. I had Nevada. Donald had Texas. Donald was wrong. And Sam, who did you have? I had Cincinnati. I thought they were going to win that game. Yes. And you would have been right if the game ended with 10 minutes left in the game because they were up 22. Or even with like three minutes left in the game. <laughs> <laughs> one of the great comebacks, one of the really great comebacks is what Nevada did today, but I never doubted them. I knew Nevada was going to make it to the Sweet 16, even when, oh, they were down sure. even when they were down 20 points with 10 minutes left. <laughs> mm -hmm. Jason, also, Jason also knew that Duke was going uh, to win their national semifinal game against Maryland in 2001. Just the whole game, he knew. Yeah, um, <laughs> never doubted it. Never had a reason to doubt it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, guys, it's time for us to get close to wrapping things up. We're going to start with player of the week. And it's not technically player of the week because we already did a player of the game for the uh, Iona game. So, game, Donald, give me your POG. Uh, Marvin Bagley is my POG, another game where he dominated. He was the best player on the floor. He is not human. And for that, he is my player of the game. Sam? Yeah, make it make it two for Marvin Bagley. I mean, Rhode Island had nothing that they could do against him other than watch him dunk all over them. So I'm I'm going to go a little bit outside of the box. I, I agree, Bagley was truly awesome. I'm going to pick Trevon Duvall because seven assists and one turnover. Um, I I really liked the way he played, and to me, the key to the game was Rhode Island has a bunch of guards. They're guard heavy. They they start four guards and one forward, and and they frankly bring in nothing but guards off the bench for the most part. Um, I think Duke not withering under their pressure, Duke not allowing Rhode Island to just run around on the perimeter um, was the key to the game. And um, Trevon Duvall is 
uh, is the man that that causes the most havoc for Duke defensively um, when we're in that zone. Uh, and I, I thought he had an outstanding game. So I'm being a little bit unconventional. I'm picking uh, Trey as my player of the game. So it is parting shot time, and Donald, I will hit you up first, my friend. What you got for me? Well, guys, you know what? We have all two teams left in the NCAA tournament. What am I referring to? I'm talking about the Duke women's team. They are in the NCAA tournament right now, and I want to wish them the best of luck. Uh, They drew a five seed in the Albany region uh, and beat Belmont on Saturday in the first round, 72-58, to and they will face four seed Georgia tomorrow at 6.40 p.m. on the East Coast in Athens. Now, they have to play in Athens, but the winner of that game will likely face UConn in the Sweet 16, which is, to, to say the word, Bo Beast, Molly Wap, destroy, uh, just not do justice to what they did to St. Francis the other day. But I want to wish our women the best of luck. I think they can go far, uh, and hopefully they can make it to Albany and take a crack at the Giants. But for now, go get Georgia, and uh, good luck to you women. Sam, what you got for me? I wanted to give a very special shout out to the guest Wi-Fi network at the Pepsi Center. I was there this afternoon to watch the Avalanche game um, because some friends had bought me a ticket, so I didn't really have an excuse not to go, but it was during the Michigan State-Syracuse game, so I did the antisocial thing. I sat in my seat, um, and I was kind of watching the Avs game, but really I had I had the, the guest Wi-Fi on, and I was trained on, on that Michigan State game, obviously, because we needed to preview it here on the show. So um, the, the Wi-Fi worked almost as, as spotlessly as you could expect for an open guest network in, in a large arena. Um, so I, I basically got to see the whole game. And, uh, yeah, that was great. Um, so thank you to the Avs and, uh, and Kroenke Sports. Oh, wait, hold on. Hold on. Say... Before, before oh, I say that, I, I should have said – I should have said the guest Wi-Fi at um, at the Pepsi Center is even better than my home internet, which, as you guys know from listening to me right now, went out in the middle of the show. So maybe I should have just <laughs> stayed at the Pepsi Center uh, to record the show. And uh, and thanks to my roommate who's listening to me on the call right now, who was like, "Dude, you missed you missed the the punchline there." So um, so yeah, there we go. Jason, Jason, let me let me get your parting shot. My parting shot is a thank you to Capital One. I love the Capital One commercials with Charles Barkley, Spike Lee, and Mace Windu. I mean, Sam Samuel L. Jackson. But I <laughs> Did don't... you say Mace Windu? Mace Windu, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> little Star Wars. There's a little Star Wars reference in there for Samuel oh L. Jackson. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> um, but I have a question, and, and I love the commercials. They're, they're ubiquitous. They're all over the place. Capital One is spending a fortune on these things. I have no idea what they're paying Charles Barkley to make a fool of himself in these commercials. Because basically the theme of the entire commercials are that Charles Barkley is an idiot and doesn't know anything. Um, He's hysterical in them. The commercials are great. I'm sure that Chuck is making a mint off these guys, but I've got an important question. I have no idea what Capital One is selling. I don't know what these three dudes have to do with investing or banking or credit cards or whatever it is that capital one does i think i think it's credit cards because i think they use they're, they're working on credit, credit cards, cards. Yeah. it's it's credit cards okay mm-hmm. but a, a, am i supposed to give capital one my credit my money because charles barkley thinks the alamo is made of ice cream and he doesn't know what an armadillo is the, the latest one is just the these three guys they're on horseback and they're singing i've got friends in low places and at one point spike lee's horse starts to wander away what I, what does this have to do with credit cards? I don't know what's happening, but I think the commercials Jason, this are is, hysterical. Jason, this, this, this and is I marketing. This is marketing. I mean, we're, I, we're I, talking about them almost as much as we talk about our own sponsors. You know what, Jason? Jason, You're I'm right. going to give Capital One credit. Here's why. Because yes. ah, get through it. all these get it. commercials. You, you, see what, you see what Donald did there? Uh-huh. He's going to give Capital give credit. One credit. Yep. No, so yeah, I'm going to give no, him credit good. because through all these commercials, every 5, 15 seconds, they are allowing us to watch these games on our phones and our tablets and our computers for free. So that I I'm okay with that. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I, like I said, I love that capital one is spending their money this way, more power to you. Keep spending your money this way. But like I said, I, 
until someone confirmed for me, until Donald confirmed for me that it was credit cards, I had no idea what I was supposed to be thanking Capital One for or what I was supposed to associate with Capital One. But apparently, Charles Barkley going to in the Annapolis is uh, <laughs> that's still the best one. That was the first one. We're going to in the Annapolis. That's still the best Capital One commercial. I just had no idea. I mean, you'd think at some point they'd like pull out their card and like use their credit card or something, right? Right. I mean, something. you got to get does, a little bit. Charles Barkley does. He does turn on the safe lock when they go to the to the the barbecue at the fair, right? That's true. Yeah. Um, so at, at one point he does use a Capital One feature, um, but yeah, lost on me as well. But it's good stuff. It's fun stuff. So, folks, that's going to wrap it up for us here on episode 113, 113 episodes of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Again, I am Jason Evans, and thank you so much for joining me and Sam Klein and Donald Wine as we had a wonderful, fun weekend. The Blue Devils move on to the Sweet 16, where they're facing the Syracuse Orangemen. I'm not certain, but I think it's pretty likely that we will have another podcast for you in the immediate wake of that game or very shortly thereafter. Um, and uh, another reminder, we remind you this every time, but if you haven't done it yet, please, please rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or however it is you're listening to this podcast. Just click that little button that allows you to rate it. Give us a five-star rating. If you want to interact with us, please send us an email, dbrpodcast, dbrpodcast at gmail.com. That's how you can reach out to us. And we thank Bird Campbell for being a sponsor. If for some reason you would like to be a sponsor of this podcast, if you want to get your words spoken on the podcast, let us know. We'll let you in on how you can have that happen for you. Again, for Donald and Sam, I'm Jason. Thank you so much for joining us here. And Duke Band, take us home. <laughs>